Thanks for tuning in for another episode of SCBC Podcast. Today we have a very exciting episode. Mary and I will be geeking out over the book of Hebrews and who wrote it and who was it written to. So it'll be a really fun episode and really deep diving in and nerding out over the Bible. And that's always fun. Uh, But before we get into the episode, which, by the way, is one of the longer episodes that we've done, we're actually going to add something called drafting. Uh, We're going to draft something again this episode because last episode... Uh, if you listen to it already with Margaret, uh, the one about rest, we drafted our favorite uh, vacation destinations, and you guys really loved it, and we heard lots of positive response for that. So we're going to draft again, and we have a special guest, Pastor Jordan, joining us for the draft. Hello, hello. It's always a pleasure to be invited back to the SDBC podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so Jordan and Mary and I, we will be drafting five rounds of church staff members. So here's how it's going to work. Uh, We get to draft from a pool of people that have their name mentioned at least once in the Bible. So anyone from the Bible who was mentioned even once is legitimately a candidate, um, except it can't be Jesus. I know Jesus was fully human and fully God, but we can't choose Jesus because that's kind of cheat code. So um, anyone else that is human, a human character in the Bible is is eligible for this draft. So we're going to do five rounds of draft, and Pastor Jordan's going to have the first pick. But the goal of this is that we would try to build a really awesome church staff. And at the end, we're going to ask you audience to try to like give us some feedback. Who do you think built the best church staff that you would be excited for, that you would go to this church because this is super exciting as a church staff? So we're going to start with you, Pastor Jordan. You get the first pick and then Mary's going to get the second pick. I'm going to get the third pick of the first round and then we'll do the snake method. So I'll get, I'll get the uh, first pick of the second round. Jordan, you can okay. start us off. All right. Well, I uh, I did try to find out uh, Mary's top picks to steal them uh, earlier yesterday. <laughs> I didn't budge. I thought I almost had you. No, you you, uh, you blocked my play to find out your picks. This is a this is a hard one going yes. first. But uh, and this is you know these the, the roles that these people will take in my church. This is not in any kind of a priority. It's more, more so who I think you might try to take sure, before. Sure. <laughs> so strategy. if I have to lock in a first pick, I think I'm going to have to go with King David. Oh, David. Oh, oh, no. Definitely was on my list. King David. And here's the role. Are you ready for it? Yes. This might, you might not. <laughs> pastor of worship and community groups. Yes. He would be good at that. Groups. Right? In his early years, he turned a band of mercenaries into an army. Could do amazing things with community groups. Yes. David's mighty men is a prime example of his ability to inspire, train, and unleash. Wow. I think he would bring both a relational and systematic approach to community groups. He unified a divided kingdom, man after God's own heart. And of course, he was a poet, a musician. He played the lyre. How awesome would that be on a Sunday morning? And he wrote many songs of worship and praise. Oh, yeah. Wow, you oh, wrote yeah. full bios on all these. Yeah, he's a songwriter for sure. Uh, I came prepared. Uh, <laughs> I came prepared. I, I expect most people to vote for my church. I brought a notebook. Yeah. No, David is definitely a solid pick. I mean, he can pitch in as a preacher. I mean, he's such an all-round leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's, he's ruled kingdoms before, so he would be great as an executive pastor. I mean, man, David's a good pick. Solid pick. But 
probably an obvious pick as well. Yeah. So, you know. Hey, I'm yeah. here to win. <laughs> I'm here to win, all right? I just chose right. the Tom Brady all right, of all our right. draft. So, yeah, King David, one of the goats, I guess, when you're building a church staff. Mary, what's your first pick here? Okay, so uh, my first pick is going to be probably for the role of uh, preaching pastor. Oh. And this is someone who we will actually talk about later in the episode, but someone who was known as an eloquent speaker um and writer and i personally love the style uh that he writes in if he in fact did write hebrew so i am of course <laughs> talking about apollos oh, you're spoiling our episode here guys. <laughs> but but uh yes apollos was definitely on my first pick for a preacher as well so there you go you took my first worship leader pick <laughs> and you took my first perfect there you go uh, my first preacher pick so with my first pick um i'll go with joseph Mm. It's interesting how we did. You went with oh, worship leader. Yes, my pick was so obvious. Yes. How about Joseph? <laughs> Let me guess, Paul, executive pastor? Yes. yes. Surprise, exactly. surprise. So, so it's interesting how we didn't pick our own positions. So Jordan went with a worship leader first. You went with a preacher first. Mm-hmm. I went with an executive pastor first. Just mixing so, it up. So I guess we know what we need in our team <laughs> to complement our own giftings. But Joseph, I think it's an obvious choice for sure because... Not only is he like, you know, excellent at administration as he has demonstrated over and over in his life, not only at Potiphar's house, being a steward, but also, of course, in Egypt as being whatever you want to call it, prime minister or a leading uh, politician there. But not only that, a lot of other characters that you guys have chosen, like, and you guys will choose and I'll choose, um, have character flaws in the Bible, right? David, there's uh, some things that we need to manage there, (laughs) make sure that, hey... If you see a woman, you can't just go after her and take her in. Yeah, I wasn't sure. That's kind of why I didn't want to put him in the lead role. So, <laughs> so however, um, Joseph, I feel like he's yeah, pretty safe. He, if, if he had to sign our covenant of lifestyle covenant that our church staff have to uh, sign on to, I feel Joseph would be safe. So I, I feel that's a pretty solid pick. So I get the second pick mm-hmm. of the or first pick of the second round. So I get back to back picks here. So I'm going to need a preacher as well. Huh. So, okay, I think I'm going to take... Well, actually, you know what? I'm not going to take a preacher. I'm going to take a director of care ministries and Ooh. visitations. Ooh. And I'm going to take Mr. Barnabas, uh-huh. the son of encouragement, because I feel like he would be excellent. Our people, if you listeners, if you come to our church with this staff, you will be cared for because Barnabas will encourage you. Okay. Definitely took my next pick. <laughs> um, okay, so my next one um, is going to be for worship leader. And to be honest, most of the reason I'm picking this individual is, well, what you read about her in the Bible, but also what you see in the DreamWorks movie. Oh. <laughs> the Moses <laughs> DreamWorks movie. I'm picking Miriam. Oh, Miriam, as there we go. my worship leader. Wait, who, who sang the Miriam songs in that movie? Was it Whitney Houston or? I think it might have been um, Sandra Bullock. Oh, okay, okay. I'm thinking of a different movie probably then. Okay. That's awesome. Worship leader. Miriam was actually on my list as well. Okay. Good call. Yeah. No, no, definitely that part about worship um, in in the Exodus accounts would help as well. Yeah, and she's pictured with a tambourine in the movie, so that's perfect. (laughs) Classic. (laughs) Pastor Jordan, the last pick of the second round. This is uh, interesting, you know. I'm faced with, uh, with a question. Do I have fun and maybe choose some obscure characters 
Or do I just go for the win? Oh. I think I'm going to go for the win. <laughs> in position number two, in the lead pastor role, teaching, outreach, focus, the Apostle Paul. Oh. You guys are making this easy. I know. You just gave me a whole speech yesterday on why you wouldn't pick the Apostle Paul. Church, it looks like my subterfuge <laughs> worked well, throwing them off of my trail of picks. He understands Judaism. Also, obviously, understands how to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. He understands where you need to go into the community to share the gospel. Vision, check. Mission, check. <laughs> Proven track record of reaching the lost and establishing a flourishing, thriving, but messy church, check. Discipleship is hard, but he is committed, willing to sacrifice, gives people a second chance, fearless. Doesn't shy away from conflict. Volatile. You know what, though? You know what, though? Unpredictable. Awesome testimony. <laughs> he has a servant heart. Yes, he does. No, no. And um, actually, Mary, you wanted Paul, right? We were talking about this the other day, and you said I you wanted I changed my Paul. mind about Paul. Okay, okay. Because um, we were talking, I'm like, yeah, I feel like Paul would be the first pick because, you know, he wrote most of the books in the New yeah. Testament. And Mary goes... Yeah, like our church needs a tent. So it would be awesome if we can have yeah. Paul on our staff and make us a tent. I'm like, what? <laughs> he was on my 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 list. He was on my list too. You know, could Paul be hard to work with? Maybe. But that's okay. <laughs> that's why we have a team. There you go. Lee Pastor, though, I like it. I like that pick. I think you can't go wrong with the Apostle Paul there. Um, Mary, you have the second pick of the third round. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we Jordan got, goes again. Jordan, Jordan needs to go yeah, for the yeah, first yeah, pick yeah, of the yeah. round. Oh! Back-to-back picks. Oh! <laughs> wow, interesting. Well, then, I guess I'm going to have to lock in for my third pick. We're on our third pick, right? Yes. Ooh, I didn't know if I was going to get this person. The Apostle John. Oh, nice. wow. You got two apostles there. In the role of family slash youth pastor. <laughs> It's kind of an overarching role here. Okay. So maybe, you know, family pastor. Uh, hopefully he has a team of people helping him because <laughs> that's a lot of work. Uh, obviously, he addresses the church as my little children. There's a love that exudes mm. from the gospel that he wrote. Mm. Um, the disciple that encapsulates Jesus' love. He's a disciple that follows Jesus to the cross and is for the cross when the rest of the disciples desert him. Commitment. <laughs> um, I enjoy the Gospel of John. I think it's very clear and precise. He obviously has a deep understanding of Scripture and the Gospel. He's a visionary. And uh, you know what? He did ministry in maybe one of the most persecuted times in Christianity. Yeah. So he, yeah. he can deal with conflict. Oh, okay. a solid pick. Solid pick, okay. especially because um, I feel like he can also do senior ministry because he's the one who took care of Mary, Jesus's mother, at the end of uh, the, the Jesus account, their earthly ministry. And also, John runs fast. That's another detail. He beat Peter. I was reading that part of the Bible. So with, he can with, catch the kids when they're running yeah, out of Sunday He'll be perfect school. for youth ministry. Um <laughs> Mary, you have the second pick. Yes, okay, so my second pick is going to be um, for shepherding and care, and I am actually going to choose Mary, like Mary and Martha Mary, because I figured for someone in this role, you need to be able to um, have the ministry of presence, you could say, and just be able to be with people, and we see with Jesus, she was just... There. Not bad. That that's mm. more of an obscure pick. Yeah. I feel that's good. Yeah. That is solid. I like that pick. Um, for my last pick of the third round here, I will choose. I need a preacher still because I don't mm. have a preacher on my rotation yet. I will take Stephen. Ooh, yeah. Stephen is passionate. Yeah. Uh, if you actually see his his sermon in the Book of Acts, it's excellent. Very methodical, powerful, clearly. And he's not. He's fearless. He's willing to put his life on the line quite literally. 
And, and I love that devotion and heart and passion. So I feel like Stephen would be an excellent preacher at any mm. church. Good so pick. I like mm-hmm. this pick. And I, I also get the back-to-back uh, pick here. So I get the first pick of the fourth round. And I, I need a worship leader at this point. Mm-hmm. So I have Joseph, executive pastor, Stephen, preacher, Barnabas, uh, care ministries, and I'll take Mary, the mother of Jesus, mm. as worship leader. She's going to sing the Magnificat every, yeah. every week. <laughs> that's the only song that's allowed yeah, now. I know. <laughs> no, but I, I feel like I, I love that scene. You know, we're in the Christmas season right now at the time of recording this. But uh, that scene when, like, she's with Elizabeth and, and she starts to break out in song. That's, like, quite cool that, mm. like, her response to God was... Um, remember how we we see some responses from Mary? It's like, oh, she kept all these things in her heart, and, and she actually obeyed. She said, hey, whatever your will is, God, I'll do, right? So I love that obedient heart that leads her to just sing songs of worship. I feel like she would be an excellent worship leader. So there you go. Mary, you have the second pick of the fourth round. Okay, for, um, I don't know what I'll call this, maybe... Community groups, community life, potentially pastoral apprentice. I'm taking Timothy. An immersed student. I like it. I like how we're all basically choosing a person to do like 10 jobs. That's how so church ministry well, is. If you only get it's five, like, you've like got to figure church it out. Plant, right? Five people, church plant staff, yes, right? That's yes. what we're doing here. Yes, yes. Yeah, this person's going to like do everything. Small staff. You hey, do but everything. community life and community groups, that's, yeah, I guess. No, no, that's good. I no, like it. I like it. And, well, he, he, Timothy is, I think, is a solid, solid pick. He's outstanding I'm surprised it's taken too. this long to pick Timothy. Yeah. There's just so mm-hmm. many choices. He can preach. He can lead churches. He's, he's got everything. No. Jordan, you got the next pick. All right. So I debated whether to actually choose this person, but I feel like because I got three solid first picks, I can have a bit of fun here and <laughs> maybe go a little, choose more of a controversial pick. Okay. Sure. okay. So for my uh, fourth pick... In the role of executive pastor, I know it's going to be controversial. I think I might go with Solomon. Oh. Now, here's the thing. I know, controversial. Solomon and King David together. But I feel like with the proper supervision and leadership, which I believe the Apostle Paul could give, <laughs> could keep Solomon in check, right? And so then what is his giftings? Well, we know he's got lots of wisdom. Can lots he, of wives. Can he... <laughs> I think the Apostle Paul can keep him in check. You're straying from the point. Uh, So, wisdom check. Can he do a building campaign? Obviously. Uh, Hello, resources. Thank you very much. Obviously, uh, he brings a lot to the table in both weaknesses and strengths. But I feel like his weaknesses could be managed. Yes, yes. No, King Solomon's solid. Wisdom is synonymous with Solomon, so that is always going to be a good pick. Oh, uh, yeah. And and I guess, would he be doing like an executive role? Yeah, executive. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. If anyone knows how to run administration, yeah. it'd be Solomon. And maybe <laughs> maybe he might be more behind the scenes, just depending <laughs> on how things go. Don't let him preach. Um, no, he. so we got y- your last pick as well, final pick. Oh, I go right into yeah. it. Oh, yeah, back to back. fun. First, first pick <clears throat> of the last round of the draft. Okay, so yeah, I mean, uh, looking at the picks that I was able to lock in, We've got a lot of top tier leadership here, mm. right? But personality um, clashes. Look yeah, at that. Yikes. Yeah, you know what though? <laughs> you need a counselor on your That's staff. okay. <laughs> Paul David Solomon. Oh my god. That's goodness. okay. You know what? We've got the Holy Spirit. Um, in my fifth pick, you know, we need somebody now to really be able to take all these visions and all these great ideas and Paul saving people and Solomon's campaigns. We need somebody to actually get things done. Yes. So here's my sleeper pick. I'm going with Martha from oh, the Bible. Oh, the doer. Ooh, oh, 
Ooh, oh, I that like is that. right. I like that. Some people might think, oh, but Jordan, is she a good example in the Bible? And I think she is. <laughs> Obviously, she yeah. has some weaknesses, but she's aware of them now that Jesus sure. has rebuked her. <laughs> right? We know that she can manage a house, get people ready. She's a server. I think she would be a good team manager. Oh, I like right? that pick. Maybe if somebody's slacking off, maybe we need to work on her management skills, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm going to have to lock in uh, uh, Martha, right? She's So okay. here's the role. Administrative coordinator, bracket, event planner, organizer, communications, front <laughs> office, bookkeeper, wow. uh, custodial. Everything. <laughs> Everything. Hey. High, high capacity. Hey, this, yeah, high, she's a doer, right? She doesn't need to be hanging out talking to people. She's going to be helping everyone else do that. She doesn't that. need to like people. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag love like Jesus. No. Oh, I like it. I like Great. that fit. I like Great. how that, like how the pick actually fits the rest of your team. I feel yeah, like it rounds it out well. Yeah, I feel nice. like with a proper team helping Martha out, she'll be unstoppable. No, no, I like that. I like that. Mary, what's What's your final pick to round it up? Okay, well, I had a few, and I'm not sure where I'm going to go based on what I have right now, but I have a feeling, depending on where these people come in, they could potentially be quite young. Um, Definitely Timothy. I don't know how old Miriam would have been, but I'm thinking I need someone, like, definitely old, (laughs) definitely wise. (laughs) Are you about to offend people? (laughs) And because, um, you know, there can be some turnover in ministry. You need someone who, you know, could commit a lot of years. And Moses has a lot of years to commit to this staff. I like it. So I'm going to lock in Moses as, I don't know, maybe, maybe let's go uh, senior pastor. Like lead pastor or seniors pastor? pastor. Okay. Like senior lead pastor. I like that pick. I like that pick. And he's got an extra closeness with God that no one else enjoyed <laughs> in human history. So I feel like that's a good thing to have if you're a lead pastor. No, I like it. Ooh, I got, I got it. So my final pick, I, I feel like there's a lot of people left that are still pretty good. Oh, this is a, a little bit of a dilemma. Who would I pick for my lead pastor role? Hmm. Mm. Or, or would I take a lead pastor? Maybe I give well, Joseph the lead pastor. Mm, yeah, that's mm. right. A little swap. Oh, so, okay, you know what? I'm going to give Joseph the lead pastor slash executive. He'll be the lead. And then I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to draft with my final pick. I'm going to do Noah. Noah, okay. director okay. of facilities. He's built an ark. <laughs> I need someone to, right now, our church, by the way, if you're listening, we're going through some massive snow and weather <laughs> issues. And I'm like, man, our Dave, uh, Dave Dodds, our facilities director, is an amazing part of our team. And I mm-hmm. recognize how valuable a good director of facilities could be to any church staff. So I'm going to take Noah. Um, like Again, similar to what uh, Jordan said earlier about Solomon and David, uh, we're going to make sure that Noah signs a lifestyle covenant so that no <laughs> alcohol would be consumed by him. There will be a zero-tolerance rule for Noah. Make sure he uh, stays in check there. But otherwise, Noah's passionate about telling people about the salvation of God, and he's got very handy skills. Uh, he knows how to uh, uh, lead animals into the ark and stuff. So you know he does well in a crisis situation. <laughs> exactly, mm-hmm. in a pretty pretty big crisis situation. So no, I'll take Noah for my final pick. Um, Perfect. So this rounds out our team. Mary, can you read uh, Jordan's team? 
Absolutely. Jordan's staff here. Okay, so on Jordan's, we have King David as the pastor of music and community groups, the Apostle Paul as the lead pastor, Apostle John as family and youth, Solomon as the executive pastor, and Martha as everything else. (laughs) (laughs) She can do it. I know she can. She can do it. I like it. And Mary, how about your team? Um, Mine is Apollos as preacher, Miriam, worship leader, Mary as shepherding and care, Timothy as the community life, community group, and... Um, Moses as the lead pastor. Oh, I like that team too. Strong. Uh, strong team. And my team, please. And Paul's is Joseph as lead pastor, Barnabas as uh, director of care, Stephen as lead preacher, Mary as worship leader, and Noah as facilities manager. Yeah. yeah. No, I like my team too. Any honorable mentions in your team that didn't get on your list, but you would have liked to consider? Well, I actually was talking to a uh, pastor, Jason, about this because, um, uh, he was maybe going to do this with us, but then had some ideas about it. And he said that someone should pick Jethro mm. as um, executive pastor because Ooh. there's a passage in Exodus that yeah. talks about how he delegated and organized yeah, yeah, yeah. people into groups of ten. I feel like Jordan. So, I feel like Jordan is the Jethro, the in, Jethro. Our, in our staff. <laughs> so maybe I need him, but Jordan maybe doesn't. Um, Jordan, did you have any? Honorable mentions here? Uh, I mean, I had other picks. Yeah. One that I was leaning towards, depending on how my initial picks were going to go, whether I was going to take Solomon or not, also thought maybe Mordecai in an oh, executive yeah, pastor yeah, role, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, recognizes uh, some important, has some important delegation abilities, is gift, yeah. and knows how to source out people's giftings. Yeah, yeah. probably a little bit manipulative higher. as well. Hey, you know what? <laughs> Executive pastor role, right? I like it. I like it. Yeah. Uh, I, I also had uh, a couple people. Daniel. If mm. I didn't, get, if you guys mm. took Joseph, I was going to take Daniel as the yeah. executive. I think he'll be good. Yeah. And and Nehemiah. Building projects? Come on now. <laughs> no, I, I, I think obviously there's lots of characters and uh, people in the Bible that we actually, you know, we were joking a lot today, but we admire. Mm-hmm. And, and whether we learn things to do uh, from them or things not to do um, in some of these characters, I think one of the most beautiful parts of this is that they're all flawed humans mm-hmm. just like us. They're not perfect in any way. Uh, and yet they do their best and they stay faithful to pointing people to Jesus ultimately, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's like Paul and John who are pointing back to Jesus or whether it's people like uh, Moses and, and and David and others who are pointing forward to the coming Christ. And I think that's wonderful. And I mean, and this is all fun and games, of course, but uh, audience, if you want to give us your feedback on which church mm-hmm. you would like to attend just based on the staffing that we just drafted, yeah. um, I, I like all of our churches, but mm-hmm. obviously I'm biased. I'm going to go with mine. But although I, I would love to go and worship where David is the worship leader, I feel like that would be pretty. I want to ask him about that secret chord. What is that <laughs> secret chord? <laughs> I have questions for Mary. Like, did you really know? Like, come on. Everyone's been asking them. But um, no, I think it'll be wonderful. Um, give us your feedback. Um, I've heard from many of you that you enjoy these drafts. Maybe you get to learn a little bit about our personalities. Mm-hmm. But I hope now that um, you'll be able to enjoy our uh, Mary and I just geeking out over who wrote the book of Hebrews. And uh, we're not going to give you the end-all, be-all answer, but you'll get into our brains and how we think and process. So enjoy the episode.
Welcome back to another episode of SDBC Podcast. Welcome back, Mary. You've been away for the last episode, at least, mm-hmm. and you've been on vacation. Um, I hope everything went well. It was awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Good, good, good. And um, maybe we'll do a podcast episode on highlighting our vacations because there was both of them were quite eventful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but welcome back. And today we've already kind of scheduled this before you went away. But um, we are for the listeners. We're actually in the book of Hebrews in our church at mm-hmm. the time of recording this episode, and uh, the sermon series is called Jesus the better. And we're technically taking a break from it for the Christmas season, but um, we'll be in this for the next few more months. And um, the book of Hebrews is amazing. I say that about every book of the Bible, and they're all amazing. But um, this one in particular, um, when I teach on, you know, you know, the book of Philippians or Galatians, or he say, oh, the author is Paul, and the historical context is this and that. But for the beginning of this sermon series, it was a little bit different because we can't identify with 100% accuracy or confidence mm-hmm. uh, the author or the recipients of this letter. So I thought it would be awesome, and we're going to do this, listeners, if you like this, and if you give us good feedback on it, we'll do more episodes like this, where um, we can't go down every rabbit trail and go into like huge details about this during a sermon because of time limitations, but also attention span limitations of some of our um, people that are gathered on a service where we're primarily worshiping God through the study of the text and the preaching of it. Um, But in a podcast, we can deep dive, we can nerd out, and Mm -hmm. if people want to tune us out, that's great. (laughs) Um, But if you're interested and if you're still uh, tuning in, we'd love to share with you our personal opinions about who uh, we think wrote the book of Hebrews and give give you some reasoning for that. You may disagree. That's totally fine. Scholars have debated this for centuries, Mm -hmm. quite literally, and that's okay. Um, But we're going to give you our reasoning behind it. But also, we want to share why these kind of things are important, like... Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Yes, we'll answer that. But does it even matter? Mm -hmm. Some people I know um, think, you know, why does that even matter? Why do you guys even do that and debate and all that stuff? Isn't it just a big waste of time? You know, the Spirit of God clearly um, initiated this and and oversaw the writing of this and inspired it. So why do we even care who who of the human authors wrote this? So what would you say to that, Mary? Why does this even matter? I think there are a number of reasons of why it matters, and I think that we'll both cover those. But the first one that pops into mind is just learning about then the rich context and history behind it, because depending on who wrote it and depending on who it was written to, there would be specific reasons and specific um, significances for that, um, depending on when it was written, who wrote it, and who it was written to. So I think that um, obviously it's still powerful and inspired by God, but um, there's probably specific meanings we can lose out if we don't know either who wrote it, why it was being written, and who it was being written to. Yeah, and having said that, we recognize that these are conjectures at the end of the day. The Bible clearly doesn't say a mm-hmm, name. And mm-hmm. so even our theories that we're going to argue for and present to you, uh, they do end up being theories, and mm-hmm. it could be wrong. We recognize that. And we come with humility, and at the same time, I think there are things that we do know for certain. Mm-hmm. It may not be like pinpointing a name, but we do know many characteristics and cultural backgrounds of the author, the anonymous author, and therefore we can make those um, interpretation um, decisions. How mm-hmm. do we interpret this text knowing that this person was uh, living in this time, in this language group, and in this culture? Yeah. And I also don't, like, based on what I was saying about context, I don't think you need to know exactly who the person was, but you do need to know or can't should know mm-hmm. where they were from, when they wrote it, and mm-hmm. what their background was. So I think we do know that, so that's exciting. We just maybe don't know the specific person. Yeah, and I am a Bible nerd, so I find this kind of exercise 
it's fun to um, do a do a mind exercise. And people, scholars who do this for a living, it's not mm-hmm. just wasted time because they're trying to uncover more of the historical context and who it could have been and who it couldn't have been. Um, and those are all important processes that pastors like myself, when I'm preparing a sermon series or when I'm doing a deep dive into a study of a Bible text, um, it's helpful for people like us. They mm-hmm. did a lot of the groundwork and homework so that I don't have to start from scratch. I have a foundation upon which I can start doing my own study of the book of Hebrews and the con- context behind it. And I think it's just so um, interesting and exciting digging into Hebrews specifically, because in the reading that I was doing, I mean, there's a lot of comments about, is this just a letter? Is it a sermon? Is it both? Where does it fall in that sort of genre character, uh, genre? Um, and also um, the fact that we don't know the exact author is pretty unique to the New Testament because of the fact that so much is written by Paul and we know that and so much is written by um, the apostles. So it's just, it's it's a special book. Yeah, it's a, it's relatively unique and um, we'll get into who we think actually wrote the letter. But even before then, I think we should talk about the fact that we do come at this with humility. We recognize that um, our, our ideas aren't the end-all, be-all ideas, that there is lots of ideas that's been written about and talked about for many, many years. Mm-hmm. But I, I hope this episode gives us confidence that this is a historical text inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, well-deserving of its space in the Bible canon. And so we want to treat it with that respect as well, even as we try to make theories about the contextual background of it. We recognize this is a holy text inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, so let's start with some conjectures and guesses that are out there. Not our own per se yet, but um, I'll highlight a few. Um, some people in scholarly work thought that it was Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote it. Some people have thought maybe it's someone on his team, not himself, mm-hmm. like a Barnabas or a Luke. Um, some people think it's Clement of Rome, who was a bishop in the first century, late first century of in Rome. Uh, early church leader in Rome uh, named Clement. And then some people think it's Apollos or Silvanus, which we find both of them in in the Bible, or the deacon Philip, right? Mm -hmm. Not the apostle, but the deacon Philip and Priscilla and Aquila. Some people think it was Jude or Ariston, uh, who was also an early church leader. Um, So we get lots of names. And this isn't even the the whole list. This is an exhaustive list. Are are there any names that you've... No, you covered all the ones I had. Yeah. And, And so there's a guy named Origen who was an early church leader. And uh, he actually has this quote. He says, who truly wrote the letter? Only God knows. Mm. Right. And I think that's fair to say, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't stop us from guessing and making some conjectures. So we're going to do that. Um, But before we get to our personal guesses at this, um, educated guesses Mm -hmm. at this, um, we're going to start with what we do know for certain. Things that we 100 percent. Yeah. uh, That that's that most scholars would agree on. Um, First of all, the author of Hebrews was highly educated, and I covered this in the sermon that we did, but he was highly educated and well-trained in rhetoric, and there is no doubt about this, right? Um, Did you find the same thing as you were doing your own research? Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we often don't appreciate form enough nowadays, I feel, because our literature is so often um, based on prose nowadays, right? It's free from any kind of format or structure. So when we write essays, there might be some sort of paragraph structures and you know, how we start like rhetorical structuring that way. But really, a lot of our literature moved away from really being tied up or or constrained by a certain format, right, a structure. So, for example, um, Shakespeare, if you remember Shakespeare from the 17th century, um, a lot of his writing, and at that time, the expectation was that there would be form, 
right? That prose wasn't as uh, eloquent. So if you're writing a poem, you you use form. So if you study Shakespeare, I used to be an English teacher. So if you study Shakespeare, you know that there's something called the iambic pentameter, which is like a rhythmic way of speaking or writing, right? So there's the accent that goes da 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 da, right? Five pairings. That's why penta, right? Mm-hmm. Pentameter, p- pentameter. Um, there's five of those, so it's very rhythmic and beautiful. Um, we've lost a lot of that. So when we preach, some people like to do that. When we speak, some people like to do that. But a lot of people don't use that kind of rhythm intentionally anymore, unless you're mm-hmm. rapping, right? Yeah. <clears throat> unless you're actually intentionally trying to make music. But um, poetry, this is what poetry is about. But we do that in children's books a lot. Mm-hmm. When I read Nathan's books, I can tell the ones that are really well written just flow um, flow off your tongue because it's like it's so rhythmic. Mm-hmm. And it's intentionally made that way, the author in a lot um, of our songs, it. too, not just rap, but yep. just general melodies yep. and songs. Yeah, but in real speech, we don't do that anymore. Mm. Whereas in Paul's days and in, in the first century Greco-Roman culture and Jewish culture and also in Shakespeare's time in the 17th century, um, that was the expectation, right? That form was how you would write it. So I'm going to read. You probably didn't expect this, but I'm going to read from <laughs> Sonnet 18, <laughs> which is actually a very famous sonnet. And I want to show you iambic pentameter in action, like how rhythmic it can be. Right, So this is a Shakespeare sonnet by Shakespeare, of course. Um, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometimes too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometimes declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Now, if you don't know this sonnet at all, when I used to teach it in high school English classes, um, this is Shakespeare boasting his whole technical mastery over the language of English. (laughs) This is what he's doing. Um, There were other poets at his time who thought, Ah, oh, Shakespeare is not as educated as we are. These guys who are Cambridge people and all that, like they were quite snobby at the time, and I think they were a little bit jealous that um, Shakespeare had royal favor, right? Like he had, he was um, his mm-hmm. patrons included some big, big time people, and yet he was clearly very skilled in the language and literary devices. So he writes this poem. He's like, "Shall I compare thee to a summer's day?" He's like, "Huh." You guys all are writing poems about comparing a beautiful lady that you love to a summer's day. But he goes, you're way more lovely and more temperate. But the way he does it, he follows the form, the expectation of his time. So shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Ten syllables, right? Hmm. Every single line all the way through. And it's rhythmic. The accent goes da-da, 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 da-da. So it flows. It just naturally flows because he wrote it that way. And I think in order to really appreciate Hebrews, we have to understand that that's how Hebrews is written. The first few words, we don't get to appreciate as much because we're reading it in English, but in in the original language of of the Greek that it was written in, there is alliteration to start off this letter. There is very specific literary devices like Illusion and others that indicate that this guy knows how to play this game of staying within the form that is expected, and he's elite at it. He's not only just like competent or or okay at it. He is elite. He is one of the most polished writers that we find in all of the Bible, uh, especially in the in the New Testament here. So I think that's one thing that we know for sure. He was well educated 
and and he was well trained in rhetoric. Um, is that something that that um, you think is important as we understand and as we interpret the Bible, especially this text? I think so, and I think <clears throat> that as um, as you say, Bible nerds, that we are maybe more inclined to want to dig into that. But it always makes me wonder because there's all of this. Um, the form and the history and everything behind every single book and every single author that I think about our church community and the fact that probably everyone's not going to ever become fluent mm -hmm. in Greek. Mm -hmm. So as a person just desiring to understand, I mean, how do we really go about doing that? That's what I always think of this because yeah. you can spend hours just for like five verses, yeah. but there's so much there. And then as you become aware of how much is there, then you become aware of how much you're missing. Yeah, yeah. And it can get a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, and like the chiastic structure that I shared a couple of Sundays ago, right? Like the Hebrew structure that's very common in the Old Testament as well. Um, and, and this guy knows how to use that. He 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 employs it in mm -hmm. his writing. So I think it shows that um, this person was uh, had very high literary competence, but at the same time, he knew how to speak the language that people would have appreciated at the time. So... I think it also speaks volumes on how realistic and contextual some of this, um, the Bible is. It's not mm. just spoken into thin air that makes no sense for, to anyone. It actually, God chooses to speak in a way that is very um, understandable to us, but also we can appreciate his mastery in the way that he writes. Mm -hmm. And and literary, being polished in a literary way doesn't mean that's a better writing than if it's written in a terse format, it's, it's actually Paul sometimes does that, the Apostle Paul. And, and the roughness of the language is actually intentional. And sometimes that draws different emotions out as the readers uh, read it. Mm -hmm. So I think these are all things that we can nerd up and geek out over for a long time. But let's move on to the second point, though. Yes. Because I do want to uh, mention that um, the author of Hebrews was, was also believed to have been the Apostle Paul for a long time in history, mm. right? I grew up with that. Uh, my pastor was a firm believer that Paul wrote this. So right. even in his sermons, he would say when Paul wrote this in Hebrews. Right. So then what would be the biggest argument for why it would have been Paul then in your... Why it would have been Paul? Would have been Paul. Yeah. So I do think we have to accept that one of the big reasons why this ended up, this book ended up in the um, biblical canon, the New Testament canon, mm. was because they probably thought it was written by Paul. Because at the time of forming the canon in the English Bible, or not in the English Bible, in the New Testament Bible, um, this was a huge influence that some of the big church leaders actually endorsed the idea yeah. that Paul wrote this, the Pauline authorship of it. Um, so I think that's one thing that you can't really ignore. Mm -hmm. However, I personally don't think it was Paul. Hmm. And I think it's actually highly unlikely. And most modern scholars right now uh, would agree with me. Um, I have s seldom seen any modern scholar arguing for Paul's authorship of this book right there's too many arguments against it yeah i read a lot about how um at some point the pauline authorship was confused with just the pauline association so yeah. probably someone who knew or had a similar training yeah. or lived in a similar area but that then there was all these reasons why it probably wasn't paul himself yeah but someone associated in some way yeah, I mean, um, so yes, some of the early fathers of the church history thought that it was Paul, and that's a tradition that there is. Um, two guys in particular, one of them is Jerome, and the other is Augustine. And if you've studied church history, you know that these are big players in the game, right? <laughs> They're really important figures in Christian history. So um, when Jerome and Augustine championed this cause to argue for Pauline authorship um, for the book of Hebrews, um, it really this theory really took roots mm -hmm. at that time. And you have to remember, these guys are from 4th and 5th centuries, right? So it's much later. It's like hundreds, four to 500 years later 
than the events, right, after the events. Um, but then there are guys like second century dudes like Clement, uh, Clement of Alexandria, not Clement of Rome, um, Origen and Tertullian. Mm-hmm. These guys are also important figures in the Christian history at the time. These second century guys all, all champion someone else, not Paul. Yeah. Uh, someone else from Paul's team, like Barnabas or Apollos or others, but um, not Paul himself. So it, it's not that these um, early fathers all agreed that it was Paul. So even from the early days, there was disagreement on who wrote the book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. So that says to me that this book was always, um, as far as we remember it as history, um, it's always been anonymous and never had a clear consensus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing that um, we know about the author is that it was someone who's a Jewish Christian, which I think it was probably a huge point pointer yeah. and why some people would have assumed it's Paul because he's, you know, one of the most notable Jewish Christians. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people think it's not just a Jewish Christian from Jerusalem, but from the diaspora as mm-hmm. well. Right. And uh, some people do argue against that theory that it could have been someone who was Greek who later learned the Jewish scriptures. Um, but that's probably a, a lesser popular opinion. Um, there are um, some hints at this, but David De Silva wrote a fantastic commentary on the social mm-hmm. background of this. Mm-hmm. And he writes uh, several textbooks from the first through fourth centuries CE or AD survive, giving us direct access to what was taught at this level. So there are textbooks on how to do rhetoric and how to do like proper um, arguments and, and presentations of ideas and philosophy. And um, this guy, whoever wrote this, the book of Hebrews, he's textbook. Hmm. Right. So some people think, oh, of course, Paul was well trained in rhetoric. Remember, he was trained under Gamaliel, which was one of the biggest rabbis in in the Jewish context. He was the excellent scholar. And so Paul would have been trained under him. So, of course, he was well trained. Well, yes, Paul was trained well in interpreting the scripture under a guy like Gamaliel. And that is high level of education, no doubt. But in pure rhetoric, especially in Greek rhetoric, um, Paul's letters don't actually... um, present itself as being as well polished. Paul's letters are actually not textbook from Mm. the Greco-Roman philosophy world. Whereas the author of Hebrews, his language and the words that he uses and the formatting is literally textbook stuff. There's archaeologists who uncovered a lot of textbooks from this era, right? And and they all match precisely how the author of Hebrews writes. Mm. But it doesn't actually match the way that Paul wrote in his epistles. And we have a pretty good sample size of Paul's writings, right? Compared to all the other authors of the Bible, we have the most samples of Paul's writing in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so we have a good idea of how Paul chose to write. And Hebrews is actually quite different if you study the linguistic aspect of it. So I think that's another big reason why I don't think it's Paul. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, um, not just the rhetorical caliber or the writing style, But Hebrews 2, uh, verses 3 and 4 actually say that um, the author came to faith through uh, uh, an apostle's teaching. Hmm. It actually says, it was attested to us by those who heard. And that means that really, in my opinion, can't be Paul. Right. But that is another argument towards the Pauline association. Yes. Yes. It could be Pauline association, but not necessarily Paul because... Paul always fiercely argued in his letters that he didn't come to faith because of John or Peter or someone else sharing the gospel with him. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Mm -hmm. So he was an apostle, even though he was abnormally born, as he would say, as an apostle. He he was definitely an apostle who sat under Jesus's personal teaching, the resurrected Lord's teaching. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I don't think he would say, oh, it was attested to us by those who heard. I heard it secondhand. He wouldn't say that. His whole argument in every epistle he writes is strongly to argue for the fact that he 
he had firsthand experience uh, under Jesus's teaching. So I think that's one of the clear arguments against Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, all the other letters are, really have a different tone when it comes to that. And I think Paul would not have veered away from his normal practice. And also um, the ending of the Bible, uh, ending of this book where he signs off, um, that is very common to how letters were written in the time. But the beginning of the Hebrews um, text doesn't actually have any letter writing conventions included in it, which Paul in all of the other letters we have, he uses normal letter writing convention format Mm -hmm. for all the letters that we have of him. And he actually clearly identifies himself. Yeah, I was going to say he refers to himself. So this this would be very unusual for him. And coupled with the fact that it it also employs a different format, different writing stylistically, I just think it's a far-fetched idea that Paul would have been the author of this book. Yeah. Yeah. So then some of the other <clears throat> the other players put forth are uh, we could talk about Barnabas. Yeah. So Barnabas. So in what I was reading, it was saying maybe one of the leading um, thoughts behind maybe why it was Barnabas is because he was referred to as the son of encouragement. Mm-hmm. And this uh, letter is also referred to as letter of encouragement or exhortation, yep. Yep. which I mean, yes, is a connection. But I don't know if it's like a specific can only be Barnabas connection. And Barnabas is clearly uh, has some Pauline association because they did missionary journeys together. And Barnabas was the one who endorsed Paul being an apostle at Antioch. Right. Um, So, yeah, there are some some associations there. Uh, Some suggest that it was Luke. Right. Hmm. Uh, Luke was writing as a scribe for Paul. So, again, that that checks off the uh, box that says Pauline association, Pauline Mm -hmm. source. Um, and he was highly educated yes, as well. Yes, in the Greco-Roman uh, philosophy, he would have been so as a physician. Check. Yes, and it, it makes more sense than arguing that it was actually Paul himself who wrote it. I think right. it, it makes a much better case. Uh, we know that Paul employed uh, amanuenses. Um, amanuenses is the plural for amanuenses, which is a, just a fancy term for a guy who is paid to be a scribe, right? Um, to to write down what someone else dictated. So Paul used that tactic. He employed people to do that before, right? We know that in other letters, he, he does that. He signs off like that. Um, Luke would have been well-educated and perhaps a much more skilled rhetorician than Paul was. So this does, it, it could be, I, I agree that this could be the case. Yeah. Um, I personally, this isn't my personal pick because I think I have Right, because we do have writing samples from Luke. Yes. And then are there strong enough parallels between Luke, Luke Acts, Acts and yeah. Hebrews? So that's where I would say the argument is a little bit weaker because mm-hmm. the parallel isn't that great. Right. Yeah. yeah. The Luke Acts writing style and the letter that we find in Hebrews is quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you could say, hey, Luke Acts is a different genre because he writes to Theophilus. And what does that mean? He's writing a gospel. Is that its own genre? Whereas this is a this is an epistle, but it's also more like a sermon. Mm-hmm. So what does that look like? Um, so I, I get the counter arguments to our arguments. They're all there. I'm not I'm not trying to uh, neglect that there is a whole counter argument to that. And scholars mm-hmm. have spent years on developing these arguments. Um, but I personally don't think Luke is the best candidate. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I agree about the the writing sample thing especially since he's actually someone who we have very clear and definitive writing samples from so i think that that's a pretty good argument why it's probably not luke yeah although we only have one book because luke acts is one book really right that's true but i mean we have a lot of content yes yes yeah so what about um what what is your pick who is your most likely candidate for the author of hebrews um I would say, I know, I think you said this one as well, but Apollos. Yeah. Just because of the number of supporting um, 
of supporting details that he has. Yeah. I was actually, I am a Bible nerd, so I, I bring this up in my everyday normal conversation with people. <laughs> Which, so I had this conversation this morning, actually, with someone from our church family, and he said, I agree with that. I think it was Apollos. Hmm. So I think this is a popular opinion in today's scholarship, especially. Um, so it's not like we're we're pulling a random name out of the hat kind of a thing. Exactly. There's a lot of support <clears throat> for it. Again, if it is a conjecture at the end of the day, we cannot definitively say it was Apollos, and we don't need to. But I will say um, there's a lot of... Um, I can't say evidence. I think evidence is too strong of a mm. word, but there's a lot of internal and external support from the Bible mm-hmm. itself and extra yeah, biblically too. Yeah, support is a good word. Yeah. So let me start with the internal support for it. Um, Acts 18, verses 24 to 28. I'm just going to read the text for you. It's in Acts chapter 18. Uh, now a Jew named Apollos, this is the time where we're introduced to Apollos. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had, de- had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So that's the text from Acts 18. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of internal support for him being qualified totally. to be the author of Hebrews. Now, Def- oh. this doesn't mean that he is the author of yeah. Hebrews. It's not that. But a lot of boxes are checked right yeah. here in this one paragraph. The first one that sticks out to me, the first support or specific reason would be the fact that he is a Jewish Christian yes. because of that knowledge of the Old Testament. And yeah. like you've said in your sermon, and we can see as we read it, like there's so many references to Old Testament in there, but then also knows the story of Jesus. And it's also so beautiful in there that you see mentorship and community, how it, he didn't just learn it either from hearing Paul or whatever, but he was specifically mm-hmm. taken aside um, by other biblical mentors to learn yeah. about um, Jesus and Christianity. Yep. And um, yes, the Jew- Jewish part of his heritage, but also that he was from Alexandria, a native of Alexandria, meaning that he was a diaspora Jew, not a Jerusalem mm-hmm. born and raised Jewish mm-hmm. person. So that's that fits more, in my opinion, to the author of Hebrews. And also that he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Yes. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. All of that fits well because there's so many Old Testament allusions. This guy, whoever wrote Hebrews, was clearly an expert in the Old Testament scriptures. And it sounds like Apollos was as well. Um, one of the things we find, though, is like, like you said, Priscilla and Aquila taking him aside, mm-hmm. teaching him more accurately the ways of God. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the interesting fact about that would be Paul has association with Apollos to a certain degree. In, in the context of Corinthians, for example, the, the Corinthians have a challenge of just like trying to say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm supportive of Peter. I'm, I'm of Peter, right? right. And then yeah. I'm of Paul. I'm of, and then there's Apollos there, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, wait, okay, so clearly Paul had some overlap with people who were under Apollos' teaching as well as his, and, and he ministers to these people. There was probably a close association of some sort, except there's much closer association of Priscilla and Aquila and Paul. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. Priscilla and Aquila um, uh, were from Rome. We'll get into that later. But they also were tent makers and they actually worked alongside Paul, like physically worked. They did a job together. Um, and in that case, they would have had much closer association. And their name appears uh, alongside Paul's way more frequently than Apollos' does. 
So if there is polyene sourcing and polyene um, association, not only did Apollos have polyene association directly a little bit, but more richly probably through guys like Priscilla mm-hmm. and Aquila. So I think this is important, what we find in the book of Acts as well. And um, it says that he wrote to the disciples or um, um, the brothers wrote to the disciples to welcome Apollos. So we know that Apollos came with like a stamp of approval, right? Right from the early church. So he's not just this random teacher that goes around teaching. He's actually one of the official people of the early church that that are um, kind of sanctioned or, or approved to mm-hmm. teach, and and he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This part, of course, um, shows us exactly what Hebrews is all about, right? Showing that Jesus is the Christ, using the Old Testament to to show people that this is always been the case mm-hmm. yeah i was going to ask though when it uses the word eloquent would that have been specifically referring to the way that he wrote and spoke like that's specifically what it's referring yeah. to okay. yeah uh, and um the other thing that i think is really cool is that he's from alexandria mm-hmm. we already talked about this but alexandria is actually a really important part of this argument um if you don't know much about alexandria it's from the it's egypt it's a city in Egypt. It's a huge cultural center. It was actually more influential than you, maybe you think. Um, some people think in that time, Athens, and you know, we hear about these places, right? Mm-hmm. But Athens, like you said in the time that when you shared, um, Athens is actually by this time in history, it's not the it's a, it's a cultural center for sure, but it's not the military or economic center mm-hmm. that it once was, right? Because Rome had taken over, and Rome is clearly the biggest and leading city of the empire. Um, Athens is still important, but Alexandria in Egypt was actually exceptionally important to the time. Um, Alexandria was a university town. Mm-hmm. I would like to think of it that way. <laughs> they have a huge track record and reputation of producing elite rhetoricians, elite scholars. Uh, think of the Library of Alexandria, right? The Lost Library yeah. of Alexandria. Yeah. Now, that Library of, of Alexandria was um, like maybe three or four hundred years even before. Um, the time of the Hebrews. Um, however, that means for generations, they would have had this heritage, this legacy of scholarship and scholarly excellence there, right? They were a center for academia and scholarship in that region and in the Roman Empire in general. So then knowing that Apollos is from Alexandria, then we could be pretty confident that he would have that level of education Yes, that would fit with his Absolutely. writing style. And it says he's an eloquent man, and yes. he was clearly well-received to the point where the Corinthian church, when they argued for Peter, it makes sense because Peter is such a big name in the, mm. in the disciples of Jesus. But then Paul, it also makes sense because Paul would have had a huge influence in that church in Corinth. But where did Apollos come from? How did he go neck to neck with Peter and Paul, he must, in my opinion, have preached a powerful sermon, Mm. right? He must have been able to really show people that he is clearly gifted and well-trained in what he does. And he was well-received by that church, clearly. Um, So for me, I think his Alexandrian roots speak highly of his educational background Mm -hmm. um, because uh, I talked about earlier um, David De Silva saying that we have some archaeological findings about um, textbooks, uh, rhetorical textbooks of the time. We actually have some archaeological findings of textbooks that were found in Alexandria and the way that um, Alexandrian scholars were taught to write and to speak and to share philosophy. And the author of Hebrews matches that so well. Hmm. It's textbook Alexandrian scholar style, right? So if you really think about the the overwhelming 
um, um, evidence of, I think, the, the author of Hebrews would have been from Alexandria. And one of the big names that we know from Alexandria would obviously be Apollos. Right. So obviously we have a lot of different support that we mm-hmm. can find here. But then I was just going to ask, did you, do you know of any um, uh, like evidence against that? Is there an, any evidence that yeah. people say, well, it's probably not Apollos because yeah. this, this, this? Yeah, I think a lot of the arguments that I'm hearing and reading is um, like, hey, could be someone else still. This is From not Alexandria. Yeah, or, or it doesn't have to be Alexandria. Hmm. It's probably the more likely, right. but we can't, we, we have to beware that just because it's highly likely doesn't yeah. mean we have to now ex- exclude other regions. Because some people think, no, this this guy could have been from Jerusalem. This mm-hmm. guy could have been from Rome, right? Clement of Rome. Because later we'll go go to talk about the um, the recipients of the letter. Some people right. think this was written to Rome. So someone mm-hmm. with a huge Roman influence should be the author. Right. So they go for Clement of Rome instead. Because he was the first bishop there, along with like Polycarp and, um, and other guys. He was one of the big leaders of the early church. So Clement of Rome seems to be a good option for them. So they, it's not so much that like, hey, your argument uh, for Apollos is weak is that, no, 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 we think this is even a stronger argument. Hmm. So I think the debate is more along those lines. Right. Um, Apollos, though, like I don't, I don't want to leave Alexandria quite yet because there's a guy named Philo of Alexandria. I did hear some people say maybe Philo wrote this, but that's, I think, a little bit of a stretch. But Philo of Alexandria lived until about 50 CE. So in my opinion, just before, like a decade or so before the writing of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Um, so he clearly had a huge influence. And um, the author of Hebrews is clearly influenced, in my opinion, by Philo. Philo was a philosopher, a Jewish philosopher from Alexandria, from Egypt, and um, we see a huge parallel there. That's one of the reasons why people think most likely the author of Hebrews was influenced by Alexandrian roots, even if he himself wasn't was from okay. Alexandria. Hmm. Um, not just the education that was there and accessible to him, but also Philo himself and the writing style and the rhetorical style is so similar. Like they're like really like crazy similar um, ways that they write about certain things. Um, but then what's really cool, if he is from Alexandria, now this is just me geeking out. <laughs> If it is Apollos who wrote the Hebrews, and we know Apollos is from Alexandria, and we know Alexandria had this kind of cultural importance in the time, think about it this way. Hebrews talks about Moses a lot, yeah, right? And the Exodus account is actually very important to the book of Hebrews. Like Hebrews 11, when it goes, you know, the hall of the fame hall, for all yeah. the faith, it actually spends more time on Moses than you think it does anywhere else almost. Hmm. Like the whole Exodus account is a huge part of that too. Now high priesthood, all of that is a very important argument, right? The cultic expressions right. of, of the Jewish rituals of um, uh, washing away your sins and all of that is very important. The, the tabernacle is important, right? So if all of that is important and this guy is from Egypt, hmm. right? Think about that significance, yeah. the personal significance, because he would have lived in a time where there were actually philosophers and rhetoricians in Egypt right? The people of Egypt, because he would have been a minority, right? Jewish Egyptian, mm-hmm. Jewish diaspora mm-hmm. person, right? But these Egyptians, I've heard that there's um, some, I found some findings, archaeological findings around um, uh, texts that were written uh, probably around the time of the author of Hebrews um, that circulated at the time that were designed to mock uh, the Exodus account. So some Egyptians have written it from their perspective and saying, no, no, this was a dishonest group of people that left our nation. Hmm. To, to refute the account of Exodus. Because if you're an Egyptian and you read Exodus, it isn't really great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they started to write, hey, no, 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 that's not what happened. This is what happened. Mm. These are just dishonest people and they left. So they wrote some stories. So 
if Apollos is the author of Hebrews, right. he would have grown up hearing those arguments, reading those things. So the the kind of the personal significance of him and how important Moses was uh, for his faith and and for Israel and all of that, living in Alexandria yeah. would have been quite significant, I think. Yeah, and I think that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of why is it important? Why do we even care? Yeah. And if, again, these are all just conjectures, but if it is someone and they have that personal significance and history of Moses and leading the people out and everything like that, it, it changes how we would view it. Yeah. So this is good. You and I agree. Um, it would have been <laughs> awkward if we had to like duke it out. I, I guess it wouldn't be awkward. I like a good argument, but um, I guess it's, 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 um, but also a lot of the people and a lot of the things that I was reading also yeah. agree. So I yeah. don't think it's, yeah. it's, it's not, random that yeah. we agree on this. We're not too risky here. <laughs> no. I guess. Um, I, I am, um, I am fascinated by these things, but the other question we want to ask is who are the recipients of this letter? Mm-hmm. Um, to whom did the author write this sermonic letter? Um, Let's begin with Rome for, for a second, just because I want to read uh, Hebrews 13, 24, because this is where Rome comes in. Uh, it says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Now, that hmm. could be interpreted in different ways, right? Um, those from Italy send you greetings. Th- this doesn't mean that you're from Rome or you're writing to Rome, because it could be A, option A would be, um, I am writing a letter from Rome. And that's why I say, hey, those people from Italy. So, hey, Mary and I are in Rome right now, and I'm writing to Canada. Then I can say, hey, the guys here in Rome mm-hmm. send you greetings. So that would be one natural reading right. of it. Another natural reading would be that um, Paul and Mary are from Canada, right? So we go to, let's say, we, we go on vacation with the whole staff. Maybe we go on a retreat to California, right? And we go, hey, people from, Cal- uh, people from Vancouver send you greetings. We're, we're writing back to Vancouver, Right. We're writing back to Canada. Mm -hmm. And now we're saying, hey, we're in California right now. We're in a different physical place, but we have a whole team of people here with me that are from Vancouver. So people from Vancouver send you greetings back to Vancouver Mm -hmm. because they would all know us. Right. right? So that's another option. Okay. And a third option is it has nothing to do with Rome or Italy. It's just, hey, yeah, like these are just random guys from Italy. (laughs) Um, That could be it too. But Hmm. most scholars currently think that Rome has to be significant. Right. If we have any clues about who the recipients were, this is one of the bigger clues. So it's really hard to just drop Rome and say it's not it. Although some people say it's um, he's writing to people in Spain or uh, the British area or the um, uh, Jerusalem is, is even one of the options. Um, there's, uh, I think, Ephesus and other uh, cities have become options. But one of the biggest one is Rome still. Um, a lot of people, including myself, believe that Paul and the team from Rome were in a different physical space at the time, and they were writing back to a church in Rome. So the recipients of Hebrews are house churches of hmm. Rome, is my my guess. But that the author not in Rome. The author's not in Rome, because, hmm. well, why would he write a letter if he's in Rome? So so the author, if this was indeed Apollos, um, he could have been in somewhere else ministering, right? We know that he would have been in places hmm. like Ephesus and others. So he could have been there, but writing back to Rome. And now... If it is Apollos, this makes my argument a little bit more um, (laughs) interconnected between the author and the recipient, because then Priscilla and Aquila are from Rome. And we know that after ministering with Paul in places like Corinth and elsewhere, they go back to Rome. So then it would make sense if Priscilla and Aquila are there and he, they've established churches and they're, they're having a leadership role there and, and serving alongside others there. And 
if a pause did write the letter, he would have written two house churches maybe there because he went to visit and minister to them as well. Hmm. Just a thought. Yeah. There yeah. is just so much, so much there. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this one? On the Rome? No, on the recipients. On the recipients. Yeah. Um, well, for sure that it would be assumed that they themselves would have a huge um, understanding of the Old Testament text mm-hmm. and no specific references. And I think it's just so... Um, so incredible because I think a lot of us today don't even have anywhere near that level of recall of those. So scriptures or where they might've been from, or then why it's significant where he's pulling these scriptures from. So I think that is definitely assumed um, that they're Jewish Christians. um, That I think is the biggest, Mm -hmm. the biggest hint of who he would be writing to. Yeah. So let me, let me go on a deep dive with the historical part a little bit here to see if I can convince people um, that it is Rome that they're writing. You don't have to be convinced. You're free to uh, um, do your own thinking. And, if you and remember anything this. from this episode, just yeah. remember Rome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, it actually says here, I'll read from Hebrews 10 uh, verses 32 to 36. It says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has, been, uh, which has a great re- reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So here we, we learned in Hebrews 10 that these guys, the recipients of the letter, the church, wherever they are, um, I think Rome, <laughs> um, they had to endure two waves, two rounds of persecution and suffering. So the first round, he says, but recall, remember the hmm. former days when after you were enlightened, after you had received Jesus and heard the good news, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings to the point where uh, you joyfully accepted the plundering of property. Remember that. Okay, remember that and how you endured it. You endured it because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one in, in heaven, right? So, so you knew that, therefore, you were able to endure it. So in verse 35, he says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Don't lose that confidence now, right? Which has a great reward for you at the end. So you need endurance now. So what we know for a fact is that the recipients of this letter went through some significant suffering before, Mm. not just like yesterday or a week ago, probably a significant time, like a few years before. And after that, there is a second round or a second wave of persecutions that they're going through now. That means this church is an established church. It's not a church plant that just happened eight months ago. Right. Right. They went through two whole rounds of suffering. So I would assume this was at least a few or several years old, this church. Okay. And who would have been the emperor in Rome at this time? So here's the thing. Okay. (laughs) So Claudius, the first, my argument and a lot of scholars argument would be that the first wave of persecutions Mm -hmm. would have happened in 49 CE or sometime around that. Okay. The reason I say that is because the, the emperor was Claudius. Right. And there's something called the Claudian Edict or the Edict of Claudius. Um, Claudius actually was was fed up a little bit uh, with all the Jewish um, Christians uh, who were causing a scene, apparently, um, because they were leading people to Christ and all that stuff. And I don't know exactly what the, the, the context would have been, but it sounds to me very clear that something was going on. 
So it says the people of Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, uh, which could be a spelling, a version of, a variance of uh, Christos, which is mm-hmm. Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so a people of Christ caused too much of a tension in, in Rome so that they left. Now, where could that tension be? Christians would theoretically be a peaceful people. Mm-hmm. So why would they be causing commotions? Well, because remember, Jewish people in places like Thessalonica, they went to seek Paul and make sure like in places like Berea that Paul wouldn't be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ there. So they actually followed Paul around and persecuted him. There's several examples of this, right? So then if that's true, it could very well be that in Rome, when there were churches growing and God is blessing it, that um, the Jewish people there were upset and they were persecuting the Christians and it caused a tension and a a civil unrest in Rome. Hmm. And because Rome is Rome and it's the heart of the empire, they would not allow that. So Claudius, I believe um, at that time, um, we know through history, it's around 49 CE or 49 AD that this would have happened. This is when Priscilla and Aquila left Rome. This is how they meet Paul later hmm. okay, in places like Corinth. Um, so if this is true, perhaps the, this church went through the first wave of suffering during late 40s, early 50s. And then they got settled back. They endured it well, clearly. And then here now they have a second round of sufferings. And this is why I think it's Rome, because there's this clear example in history of a second wave of suffering for the Christians, Mm -hmm. which was in around 64 AD, now during the time of Nero, Nero. the emperor, um, about, you know, we're talking 15 years later after the first wave. At that time, uh, Christians in Rome were persecuted. There are legends that say that they were burned while Nero was eating. You know, Nero mm-hmm. was a little bit of a crazy emperor. Mm-hmm. While he was eating, he would look out and he would have Christians light up um, his dining scene by uh, literally lighting them on fire on a stake, right? Um, so if this this kind of intense persecution is in view, Christians were the scapegoats for the fire that apparently Nero caused right. in yeah. 64 AD. Mm-hmm. This is in history called the Great Fire of Rome. And history, not Christian history, but history writes that uh, Christians were just chosen to be blamed for it. Right. Right. So if this is true, then 64 AD is the fire. And then from then on, there's a series of uh, very severe persecution for the Christians in Rome. Mm-hmm. Right. So if this was written to Rome and this is the second wave of persecution and suffering that this church is going through, it totally makes sense in the timeline. So that's why I think the book was written probably around 65 to 68 AD, because I do believe the book was written before the fall of Jerusalem temple which is 70 AD, but after the Great Fire of Rome, which is 64 AD. Hmm. So that time window and the fact that Apollos is who I believe wrote this letter, I feel like the most likely candidate for the recipients of this letter would be either Rome or someone who is some city that is heavily influenced by Rome itself because the persecution would have bled through that, hmm. right? Um, so that's kind of my conjecture on it. Um, we know that the the persecution wasn't so severe at this time, but the author was preparing them to be ready because in Hebrews 12 verse 4 it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Hmm. So that means not many people have like lost lives yet, it sounds like, but there is enough persecution that people are starting to walk away from the faith. Right. And if it was during the time of Nero, then it would have been starting to ramp up. up. Yeah. Yep. And so mm. hence where I think maybe this was around 65 AD when this letter was written mm. as, as the persecution ramped up. Um, so 
I feel like I make a pretty good argument. It is a pretty good argument. But having said that, I know that there could be other suggestions and they could also have very strong um, support for that too. Yeah. yeah. And again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think this is just one of the reasons why it matters. Why do we care? Because of this this context and history behind it. I think it's um, incredible that the author of Hebrews reminds of the first time it happened and yeah. how God carried yeah. us through that. And we, me and you have talked before just about the the power of remembering mm-hmm. and remembering what God has done in your life. Because even if you're in a place right now where you're overwhelmed and blinded by whatever's going on, remembering and looking back and seeing that God has brought you is a powerful thing. And to know that potentially in this, in this context, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about when they were being murdered and slaughtered for their beliefs. And then to be a person potentially going to be burned on a stake or taken to the Colosseum and executed, mm-hmm. all of mm-hmm. these things. Like it changes, it changes how we see the significance yeah. of it. Yeah. And how real this is. Mm-hmm. This isn't just fiction or fable. These were real people, whether it's Rome or Jerusalem or Alexandria or Apollos or Silvanus or Barnabas or Paul. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day who or where. What does matter is that we have enough evidence and support to know that these were real historical events that we can pinpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means the persecution was real. And that means the faith was real. That mm-hmm. means there was no other way they would have survived it or thrived in it or even endured it unless they really did cling on to Jesus Christ and the hope that the author presents, that Jesus is better. The threat for them to abandon the faith was real. And he had, the author of Hebrews felt the need to write this sermonic letter. It wasn't just like he was bored one day and decided to pick up a quill and just write. Mm. Um, so I think it, it helps us to appreciate Definitely. that this is a living and active word of God that was very real then, and it should be and is uh, very real to us now through our own real struggles and challenges and sufferings that we go through. So mm-hmm. I think the Bible is the just the most amazing thing, the biggest gift that God's given us, um, um, Christ himself and his word. It is so good to us. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I hope as you're listening that you are inspired to do your own digging and researching and maybe arguing in a very friendly and respectful way. Nerd Um, out with us. Yes, yes. And if you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. If you want to see more or hear more episodes like these um, uh, tied to like an expansion of our sermon series even, uh, uh, we would love to do more. So give us your feedback. We'd love to hear back from you and uh, we'll see you in, uh, in our next episode. 